Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our next guest is Palak Shah. Palak is the founder of Open Spaces Capital. Open Spaces generates close to $1 million in revenue. An engineer by trade, after the birth of her two kids, she decided to make a move into entrepreneurship to be able to spend more time with her children. Though Palak has invested in real estate for many years, in her first three years investing full-time, she purchased, renovated, rented, and refinanced properties, creating a $4 million rental portfolio. It is now our passion to empower other women to pursue entrepreneurship through real estate investing, to live an empowered and financially free life through Open Spaces Women. Pak, thanks for joining us. We're really glad to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So let's start at the beginning. You're an engineer. I assume you had a good job, probably made a very comfortable living. What made you want to leave your job to pursue real estate? So I'm a mechanical engineer. I climbed the corporate ladder for 17 years. I was working in a niche topic in the pharmaceutical industry that nobody outside of the industry really cares about. But my job was to basically travel all over the world and explain this process change to CEOs of different companies. And that changed their bottom line dramatically. And it was amazing because I felt like I was making an impact. Except at the end of the day, I was making somebody else all the money. At a job, you really don't make any money for yourself. So in our late 30s, my husband and I decided to have kids. And I realized that the higher up you move on the corporate ladder, the less time you have for a family. So I felt like a lie was sold to me. Like, hey, build your career first, get financially stable, and then have kids is a complete lie because then you don't have time for the kids. So I would leave the house while they were still sleeping and then come home just in time to put them to bed. And if at all, I was in town because I was traveling a lot. So I went up to my boss's office and I said, look, I need some flexibility. I don't ever get to see my kids. And he said, what are you going to take the factory home? Like, how is this even going to work? So I spent months in turmoil, but then my husband and I made a decision. We were going to become a single income family. It was a huge choice. I was making six figures at the time. It was a really big change for us. So we made the change and then I knew I had to pursue real estate because I was passionate about it, but I didn't know how to grow a rental portfolio while being a single income family. So we started doing value-add investing. That's where the change (laughs) happened, yeah. So how nervous were you when you left the job? I wouldn't say nervous. It was just a huge risk. Because I feel like when you've always been in a 9-to-5 type of environment, you don't know what it takes to be an entrepreneur or an investor full-time, and you don't know all of the things associated with it. It was more like, a big risk than being nervous. But I had this visceral need to be around my kids. I knew that 
if I wasn't going to do it, it was like a do or die. Now or never. Yeah. So tell us about the first purchase. So we started investing while I was still working. So at that time, we were a double income family. We would scrape every dollar <laughs> and buy a rental. So we bought a few properties before I quit. Were you doing conventional mortgages to fund these? Yeah. So what we were doing was, for example, I would pay like a ton in taxes every month. So it would force me to save and then get a, a tax return and then put that towards a property, borrow from 401k. If my husband had stocks, we would sell them when it was time to buy the property. So we bought a few, but then after I quit, we were doing conventional mortgages. And then after I quit, we had to figure out how to treat it like a business. So after I quit my job, I decided to move over to LLCs and truly learn how Make seasoned investors yeah. work. Yeah. In the beginning, how were you finding your properties? Were you on the MLS, just on Realtor.com or one of those places? So in the beginning, when we were investing on the side, I was just going on the MLS, working through a realtor. And then the first deal we did after I quit my job, I found that property through a wholesaler. And throughout the last three years, I've built, my portfolio is worth $4 million now. Our revenue this year was $1 million. Throughout this process, I have worked with multiple wholesalers and still found good deals on the MLS as well. Can you walk us through the process of working with a wholesaler for those of us that might not know at home? So there are different kinds of wholesalers out there. And I make it a point to work with wholesalers, one who have uh, a real estate license because they know the process well and the documentation and everything is done correctly. And also, I like to work with wholesalers who genuinely care about the community, who are a part of the community. I don't want to work with somebody who's going to take advantage of a homeowner who's not very well aware of the process. So it works very similar to buying a property from the MLS, especially if the wholesaler does hold a license. The only difference would be that the wholesaler would also get paid at closing. And then I find that some of the wholesalers will, outside the property before showing, the wholesaler might tell me, if they ask you, just tell them you're my partner. And I have to say, that's not how I want to do business. So you get the clues that this is a wholesaler who does their job well versus somebody who's just trying to Take make advantage. a deal happen. So what markets are you targeting? So we are mainly in Philadelphia. Any sub-markets of, of Philadelphia yeah. or do you just look all over? We used to be in Point Breeze, Graduate Hospital that, area. Yeah. Yeah. And then now we've moved over to Germantown uh, in Northeast. So do you see this line keep moving of where before a neighborhood was undesirable and now all of a sudden there's a hot market of runners that want to come in? Do you find that's what's happening in those areas? Yeah, Philly is an amazing place to be right now. There is so much happening. Yeah, I definitely see the lines moving. <laughs> So do you have an end goal? Like I want to be at X amount a month, a year. Is there ever going to be a stop to this? Or I don't think there's ever going to be a stop because I feel like I'm never satisfied. So the work itself and the journey itself is the goal. That is the fun part is to grow and to learn new things at every step. So what attracts you to those markets that we talked about? 
the german town and surrounding areas i was a part of jumpstart german town which is a grassroots organization that helps the community grow from within and the cause that they're after really spoke to me and i feel like being a part of a community that welcomes developers and that you are also able to give back really means a lot to us then let's talk about something that seems to be near and dear to your heart the gap in pay so i found out that the gender wage gap which everybody talks about i think it's 79 cents on the dollar found out that the gender wealth gap is 32 cents on the dollar so for every dollar that a man invests a woman is investing only 32 cents which is just staggering and we have to do something about it why do you think that is there are a few things that stop women from investing for example specifically in real estate it's still an old boys club and women are intimidated going into a field that that they don't have any role models for or no support system around them i also find that risk taking just the way we're conditioned comes a little more naturally to men and then the other thing i found out i was reading a study on it is that women don't move forward with something unless they're 100% or 120% confident and i see men going into deals when they're 60 to 80% there like okay i think it's going to work like 60 to 80% chances i'm just going to do it i saw it being an engineer we would be sitting in a conference room and i wouldn't present an idea because i was only 90% sure that was going to work and then i would see other ideas being presented and i would be like wait a minute like what i have to suggest is going work definitely better than that but i'm not suggesting it because i have to be 120% there before i make that suggestion so at your old role as an engineer that seemed to be more of a boys club as well right do you think coming from a male dominated industry we'll say that's helped you be more confident in real estate which you described as being another male dominated industry so you're doing one thing to another and as you said they're both male dominated industries i definitely got comfortable over the course of the past bunch of years being the only female in a conversation and that does help but i would say that this is a skill set that can be developed it's not something that anybody is born with to step out of your comfort zone and be the one person who's different in a setting it's something that you can learn to be comfortable around as a female leader has there been a significant barrier yeah so for me i feel like the biggest barrier that i have is myself and it is because of social conditioning and however we're brought up but my own limiting beliefs are what keep me from moving forward so people talk about constraints like processes and systems and capital but first and foremost is being able to believe in ourselves we as women don't have enough support to be able to do that so it just requires that extra effort and the real estate community has been amazing especially locally in philadelphia helping women also achieve the same success rate as men have you been seeing an influx of women into the real estate world in philadelphia 
I see a lot of women stepping up and wanting to invest, but I still don't see... It's at 120, 130%. They want to know more about it, but they're not ready. Yeah. Not just that. I feel like overall, we're not doing enough as a community to help women invest more. What do you think is something that we could do as a community to incentivize women to invest? It's kind of like the catch-22 or the chicken or the egg. Because there are very few female investors, a lot of the content and the support out there is not directed towards the female investors. But then again, unless we create those systems and the support that women need to come up, it's not going to happen. So it's like the chicken or the egg situation. Or which one do you do first? You have two websites. So we have the one website for just real estate where you put your deals. You put amazing before and after pictures, by the way. I have to say they are awesome. Tell us about the other website and what you hope to achieve by putting that website out there. So we have Open Spaces Capital, which is the investing side. And we're really big on providing quality rentals at an affordable price. And the other one is OpenSpacesWomen.com. That's the education side of the business where I want to do whatever I can to help other women get into real estate investing. So I'm really passionate about this, especially because of what we just talked about, the staggering wealth gap between men and women. And having worked in corporate, I mean, I remember pumping breast milk in an office where I would cover like the windows with newspapers. And it's just so hard. I felt trapped at that time. I wish someone had come to me and said that there is a way you can tackle this. There is a way out of it. And I see women who are mothers of young children, overworked and stressed. And I just want to tell them that, look, there is an option. There is this two-choice fallacy that's out there. Like either you are a working professional couple trying to raise young children or one party, predominantly women, stays home And the other person keeps their full-time job. But there is another option out there in investing or entrepreneurship. There's a third option where you're able to grow and scale a business and make an impact in the world while being able to spend time with the kids. So you're extremely well-educated. You're compensated very well when you're at your corporate job. What about a woman who might not have the education, the expertise, and the income that you had, how can they procure funding to go out and take down these deals to help bridge that gap that you were talking about, that investment gap? That's a really good question because the lack of capital is what holds most new investors back. The strategy that we use, which is value-add investing, is fantastic for that because you need seed money but you can use the same money again and again. So we use the BRRRR strategy, buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and repeat. So you basically buy a property that is distressed, and then you renovate it. And once you renovate it and rent it out, also known as stabilizing, you can pull the cash out that you originally put into it when you refinance it, and the property would still be yours. It would cash flow and take the cash that you pulled out and invest it into the next deal. What about women or anyone maybe? Let's say they don't have a lot of money. How do you get enough money to purchase, go out and buy one of these? 
when we did have two incomes, we used to have multiple avenues like borrowing from 401k or tax returns. Once I quit my job, I had the same issue. We didn't have the two incomes coming in. We didn't have the ability to save. I didn't even in the beginning have enough cushion to be able to hire full-time childcare providers so right. I could go and learn more. And in the beginning it was rough. We worked long hours while having my kids with me. I was taking them everywhere with me, put them in their car seats during nap time and scope out neighborhoods, drive around. So it is tough in the beginning working when they go to bed till 2 a.m. But in terms of money, what we did, and there are multiple options out there, I'd maintained a good credit. And Bank of America offered me a personal line of credit. It was 4% upfront and then 0% APR for the next 18 months. And I borrowed $55,000 and did a bunch of deals before I paid it off. So you essentially paid 4%. On the 55 grand, and then in 18 months, I take it, you rip the equity out of whatever you had the houses, and then you paid the loan back? Right, exactly. The only thing is, this is, I wouldn't 100% recommend this option because I didn't know this when I first did it, and you know, somebody else can learn from my mistake is your debt to income ratio takes a hit because it shows up on your, your credit, credit yeah. as. A credit card debt even though you didn't go out and spend that money so it shows as revolving debt and your credit takes a hit and then when we were trying to refinance the property the bank and credit unions are fantastic by the way for that they will work with you the local banks especially for refinance they said that we would refinance if we could pay this off directly which was fine with us because yeah. that's what we were going to do anyway would you recommend private money to get started? We haven't used private money yet. We've used hard money lenders, hard and soft money lenders for short-term financing. I love working with reputable hard money and soft money lenders. I also find that the hard money lenders are a really great partner and a sanity check for deals because they won't fund a deal Crazy unless deal. they know that it's going to work and that they can get their money back. So. What's a typical rate for hard and soft money and points as well? So we have used a soft money lender in Philadelphia that is around between 7 and 8%, which is fantastic for short-term financing, and then two points. And then it goes anywhere from that. They're very specific to a neighborhood. So it goes anywhere from that all the way to 13%. But I would say fortune favors the finance savvy. So I took two weeks and I called 90 different short and long-term lenders and created a giant spreadsheet with all of the terms. And it gave me a really good feel for what's available out there and what I can use to do short-term and long-term. I don't know if this is like an official term. Okay. I just called soft money lenders, people who have lower interest rates than hard, hard money, money lenders, lenders for, okay. yeah. All right. What advice would you give to the next generation of female leaders? I hear a lot about risk-taking. How do I get comfortable taking risks? This is really big when it comes to real estate investing because some of it is actually taking calculated risks. So I would say learn to flex your risk-taking muscle. The more you do it, the better you get at taking calculated risks. And you can develop the skill set over time. So step out of the comfort zone and treat 
any risky investment as a learning experience. So what I do is I define the risk. So I say best case scenario and worst case scenario. So best case scenario, this is how this deal is going to work. Worst case scenario, I'll be out $10,000, let's say. Am I willing to spend $10,000 to learn what I'm going to learn from this deal? Consider risk taking as an investment in your education and learn to quantify it. The second thing I would say is I get this invisible mental load a lot. Women are asking all the time, how do I find time to work on my real estate business? I have this invisible mental load. For example, I have Christmas cards to send out or I need to throw my kid a birthday party. And I hear women talk about Marie Kondo and being highly organized and highly productive. There are other thought leaders out there who are talking about productivity. And I just have to say, stop. I'll tell you, I'm a very OCD person. <laughs> and <laughs> it was a conscious decision I had to make. Be unproductive and let certain things be disorganized. The best ideas I've ever had are when I'm not doing anything. And for me, downtime is, to me, spending time with my kids. So whatever downtime means for you, be unproductive. It's okay to be unproductive and strategically drop the balls. Women are trying to hold up all of these balls in the air. You don't have to keep them. So I always tell my students, if you're struggling with the invisible mental load, make a list of the tasks that you're doing per week. And then make a diligent list. And then you can do three things with some of the tasks. You can automate some of them. You can delegate some of them. And my favorite is just eliminate some of them. <laughs> so you won't find me throwing Pinterest-worthy birthday parties for my kids, but I will be taking them to the zoo often. Yeah. <laughs> so anyone that's been to your website, they've seen these phenomenal before and after pictures. Do you work with the same contractor? So far, we've worked with the same contractor that we started working with in the beginning. Oh, so that's your day one? That was your first contractor? Yeah, he actually renovated one of the properties we bought when we were both full-time employees. And I struck up a conversation with the seller at the closing table. And I said, we love the quality of the work. Would you mind sharing the contractor's information? Yeah. And at that time, I didn't know I was going to do major renovation. I was using him for like smaller projects. And then when it came time to purchase the first Burr property, I took him with me. And because we already had a relationship he came with me and we've used him since. And it's a partnership. You have to want the other party to also be successful to be able to make it work for this long. Will the contractor walk through a property with you and say, this is how much it's going to take to get it up and running? Yeah. We do property walkthroughs together. In the beginning, I was also getting inspections and I learned a lot from following the home inspector around and asking questions. But he does come to the properties with me. Do you still get the inspections even with the GC? I do sometimes still, just to learn if I find something that I haven't seen before, I'll get an inspection done so I can learn something new. With the contractor and value-add investing, it can be a lot because every time you run into something new. So what we've done is I have standardized this. So if it's a single family, three bed, one bath, row home in the city, my contractor and I literally do not have to have a conversation. He knows exactly what to do. But so we have a template set and we just keep repeating the same thing. When we do smaller multis, I'm still building processes around it. And I'm hoping to have a template down for that as well. So in the beginning, 
were there times where you thought maybe you want to go back to the nine to five that's a little more comfortable than this? I have literally never given this a second thought. This has been amazing. amazing. I love what I do and I love the flexibility and being able to spend time with the kids. I do have to say that it's not easy. Like I don't want to paint a rosy picture. The first year was a lot of work. But what I would say is if you know in your core why you're doing something, it propels you forward and it's easier to get through roadblocks if you know. Like for me, being around my kids was like a visceral need. I couldn't deny it. I didn't leave myself any other options. And I knew that if I didn't succeed at this, it was going to crush me. I just had to make it happen. So it didn't matter if I was working 18-hour days. I just kept knowing why I was doing it. So when you're looking at a property, are there any hidden values that you see that other investors may overlook? What I have done is I don't try to make things very interesting. I don't reinvent the wheel. I know there is a proven formula out there. I have tweaked it and I have supercharged it it over time, but I know this strategy works. And if I do it once, I want to do something that's repeatable. I always say like find a property that is small, a project that is simple, and a strategy that is scalable. How do you screen your tenants? It's important because we're all here to to learn about this. And this is something that no one really talks about because we talk about buying the property, fixing it up, and then we rent it out and all of a sudden we just magically make all this money. But screening your tenants and getting the right person in there, that's a big part of it. Right. The first property that we purchased. I had no idea actually how much rent I was going to get from it. And then when I defined the strategy, I took everything into consideration and started building the strategy that way. You do like a point and a half or one and a half to 2% of the ARV a month. Is that what you try to shoot for? Yeah. So the 1% rule. So you get 1% gross of the after repair value of the house. What I want to do in value at investing is I want to be able to do two things. I want to be able to pull all my cash out at the end and I want it to still cash flow. So as long as both of those criteria are met, I will move forward. So in terms of screening the tenants, <laughs> back to your original yeah. question, what I do is I tell them upfront that we look for first month's rent, last month's rent and security deposit. And that deters some of the people because they simply don't have that. We asked for two most recent pay stubs and we call their employer to check for employment and we look for income to be three times the rent. You do all this verification yourself or do you have a manager? I have a VA that I work with and I have a team that I've contracted some of this out to. But yeah, I've kept property management in-house. I like maintaining the tenant relationships. So income three times the rent, that shows their ability to be able to pay the rent each month. And then I put a huge importance on previous landlord references. So I will call their previous landlord and I will ask questions like, were they paying their rent on time? Did they keep their property in good condition? When they left, what was the condition of the property? And things like that. You touched on your strategy of buying it, fixing it, trying to get 1%, excuse me, gross. How long does it take Typically, from the time you purchase, you close on the property to the time you're able to rent it out. And then 
how much longer after that till you get the money do you get the money back from the best we've done is four months it's been really hustling the longest we've gone is almost a year when we did a 10 unit deal last year it took almost a year to get through that rent all of them out you mentioned on your website having excellent customer service why is providing excellent customer service important and can you give us some examples of ways you provided the tenants with this excellent customer service we're all about balancing social impact and profitability and because we go in neighborhoods that don't have such good customer service i feel like it helps me stand out as a landlord and social impact and profitability should always go hand in hand that's what always works for us so overall there's an affordable housing shortage all over the country where two thirds of the landlords don't accept section 8 vouchers and we want to make sure we are part of the solution and we have started accepting section 8 vouchers and at the same time i like to call landlording a hospitality business it's you're providing housing to someone it's a huge impact on their life so i like to provide exceptional service high end finishes with granite countertops stainless steel appliances new bath new kitchen even for section 8 tenants and i've started tracking maintenance requests to reduce the amount of time it takes to address maintenance issues and i want to provide great experience to these tenants and running my business this way you'd think that upfront it's lower return on investment but i found that tenant retention is higher and tenants tend to take care of our properties better and when tenants leave if there is a quick turnaround because they left the property in good condition it makes this a very profitable business model as well why is it so important to minimize tenant turnover because vacancy is the biggest cash flow killer <laughs> and you also find that you have to make repairs and things like that to prep it right so two things when a tenant leaves first the more work you have to do the more money you're spending and longer the property sitting vacant and then you're losing the monthly rent if you're making a few hundred dollars a month on a property if you lose two months rent suddenly you lost all of the cash flow for the entire year when you're underwriting do you look at how close your subject properties are to bus and train stops and do you pay attention to the walkability score of the property yes and no so i do want it to be very close to public transport but i don't go by the website like i think rentometer has a walkability score i don't go by that score i walk the neighborhood myself to figure out what are the things that are close by so if there is a house that's very close to a school but doesn't have a very high walkability score to me that's more important if there is a family with children who are going to go to school they would prefer that than to be able to walk to a coffee shop what books are you reading right now I love Think and Grow Rich. That's like my all-time favorite book. I also love The One Thing. I'm listening to it again right now. How can women or people get in touch with you if they want your expertise, they want to learn from you? How can they reach you? So we have the portfolio program at openspaceswomen.com. If you go to openspaceswomen.com/webinar, there's actually a free training and that helps them get to know me better and what i talk about in that training is the four pillars of scaling with this value add investing strategy 
So it's packed with a lot of information. But at the same time, you also get to know me a little bit better, you know, see if you want to work with me. And then uh, Open Spaces Women has an immersive portfolio program that runs for three months where I teach women how to do value add investing from start to finish. And it's very intense. So you've been warned. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Falak, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. I had a blast on this interview and I enjoyed learning about all the stuff you're passionate about. Yeah, it was really great to meet you and glad to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.